your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on International Business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Hello, good morning, good evening, uh, good afternoon, possibly maybe, depending on where you're listening, of course, welcome to, and when you're listening, of course, welcome to the Culture Matters podcast. We have an interview podcast this time, and it is with Belgian Christophe van Hampelaere. Don't ask me to translate that in English. Uh, we call it. We call him. I call him Christopher. He calls me Chris. So it's it's closely related to that extent. Uh, Christopher is the Belgian partner at Global PMI Partners, the only global consultancy focused exclusively on international merger integrations and carve-outs. PMI stands for Post Merger Integration. And that's where Christopher is a partner. It is one of the longer interviews um, here that we have on uh, the Culture Matters podcast, but it's definitely worth listening to. Typically, if you're interested in mergers and acquisitions or organizational culture as such, we talk about um, what percentage of M&As actually run really smooth and what percentage are, well, not as successful as the smooth running ones. And also, uh, Christopher sheds some lights on, on why that actually is. So make sure you listen all the way towards the end and um, let's not wait any longer and dive right into the interview. Good morning, Christopher. How are you? Hi, Chris. I'm fine. How are you? Um, pretty pretty good as well. We are actually, uh, uh, I guess, about 100 kilometers away from each other if you are where I think you are. Are you in, uh, in Ghent at this moment? I am, yes. Okay. So we be- both speak uh, the same language dutch yeah we could switch to dutch but then again nobody pro- probably nobody would understand what we're talking about and i, I don't think google uh, google translate is that fast in terms of, uh, of translating the language um on the other side of brussels that is because i'm on the on the east side and christopher's on the on the west end side of brussels in ghent christoph christoph van van Hampelaren. That would be the Dutch uh, name. Tell us a little bit, uh, Christopher, before we uh, continue. Who are you? Um, where do you come from? Where are you currently? We'll, we know you're in Belgium. And what is your cultural frame of reference, please? Uh, who am I? Yes. I'm um, country-wise, a Belgian. <laughs> uh-huh. yes. That came out very hesitantly. Yeah, from the Flemish uh, region. That's that's an interesting topic, by the way. We can perhaps talk about the uh-huh. differences between uh, Flanders and and uh, the French-speaking region of of uh, Wallonia. Mm-hmm. Um, born in '67, uh, a family, two children. I've I've lived in, in in Belgium most of my life, but I've also lived in uh, New York and in, in Manchester, uh, in Detroit, and I've I've worked a bit. Um, around Europe and the US in my work as a merger integration expert. And I, I'm an economist, mm-hmm. uh, MBA, and I started in finance as an auditor mm-hmm. with Ernst & Young and uh, did then finance roles in, in, a, in the music industry because I'm a bit of a music uh, fan. Then I moved to New York. Uh, I was an assets manager in New York, uh, managing family office of 350 million mm-hmm. moved back to uh, and that that's dollar wise not people wise <laughs> just, just making sure 
<laughs> dollar wise, yes. Yeah. An old an old fortune made uh, in the nineteenth uh, century, and and still uh, uh, the people, the descendants of that, uh, the the person that made the fortune, are still. I wouldn't say live off the money, but use the money wisely to get a good education and, and to start businesses. Mm. Um, moved back to Belgium, worked uh, in a telecommunications company, had a, a great title. I was a VP Finance Europe and the Caribbean. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good region to be, I guess. <laughs> yeah, also interesting because uh, that's, a, that's a, a culture mix, uh, absolutely. Very much. And then started the merger integration practice for Ernst & Young in the Benelux countries in 2006. And okay. then five years ago, um, co-founded the Global PMI Partners, which, which is still the company that I work in, PMI yep. being pre- and post-merger integration. Pre- and post-merger integration, PMI. So we've got that out of the way as well. Okay, thank you for that, um, that very extensive introduction and... Um, uh, on a side note, what music is your is your favorite music? Uh, quality music. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, maybe maybe that's for another another yeah. podcast, possibly. Maybe um, you you said okay. Let's talk about quickly about Belgium because that can be if you're if you're visiting Belgium and you want to know a little bit more about Belgium, then very often um, non-Belgians get very confused about the structure of this country. Me being a Dutchman living here eight years, I've sort of figured it out, at least partly. But can you sort of enlighten us, um, knowing that about 50% of the uh, of the audience in, is in the US and the other 50% is, is spread around the world, with some of them being in Belgium as well? Yeah, Belgium is a tiny country. Its yeah. capital is, is Brussels. So it's, it's, it's situated uh, between the UK... Uh, on the west, Holland on the north, uh, France on the south. Uh-huh. So that, that's where that's where we are located, and 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 being tiny, um, we still manage to have three um, language areas: mm-hmm. a German-speaking, French-speaking, and a, and a Flemish-speaking area, and then also three governments for a mere ten million or eleven million people. And you, um, when you read about Belgium, if you ever read about Belgium, mm-hmm. uh, journalists tend to, in my mind, exaggerate uh, the, the, the tension between mm. the French-speaking side and the Flemish-speaking side. Um, I, there's no tension when it comes to personal relationships. Yeah. You know, I have friends uh, on both sides. That is all fine. But there both, are the, both sides of the language barrier. The language that, barrier. Because yeah. there's indeed a language barrier, you know, uh, Flemish-speaking village and then uh, Across the language barrier, it's all Flemish and French. There are different governments. There are different political parties. So there, there's, a, there's a big distinction between mm-hmm. the two, uh, politically speaking. And that's where most of the tensions actually arise on a political level, not mm-hmm. on, a, on, a, on a personal level. But the political level reflects the, the huge cultural difference uh-huh. between the two regions. Um, Let's say that the French region is, is more Southern Europe um, where relationships, for example, are based or trust is based on, on, on the relationship, on, on, you know, whining and dining mm-hmm. and, and um, developing something slowly with a different time perspective as well. You know, things take, take time and it, because you need to get to know each other. North 
of the language border. Still in Belgium, that's the Flemish. Still in Belgium. Uh It's more like the Dutch culture. It's more um, facts-based, industrial. uh, We we get things done and and, uh, it's it's more like the focus is more on efficiency uh, than it is on on relationships. So that's one of the differences. But you have those across the uh, culture spectrum and so, indeed, there are distinct uh, differences. And wh- why is it actually one country? Because at religion-wise, it was Catholic. Mm-hmm. Whereas Holland, at a certain moment, uh, Holland and Belgium split up. And Holland was more the Protestant region. Mm-hmm. So, that's, that's, it's, it wasn't split according to language barriers. It was more split according to yep. religious yep. barriers. Yep. And you, and, and you, as in the Belgians, uh, in, in plural, you, you eventually said, we've had enough of the Dutch. We don't want you here anymore. Yeah, because although we do speak, speak the same language, also there is a big uh, cultural difference. And, and, for ex- and, and that is, in my mind, strongly related to, uh, to religion. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the Catholic religion uh, hierarchy is important mm-hmm. in the Catholic Yes, and, and you listen to the boss, and to in the pro- Pope. In, in and, Protestant and, and, Christianity is more up to you. Yes, and and you guys rejected the Pope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but 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 the the whole thing is 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 measured. Um, I think that a lot of the origin between the, the cultural differences come from the religion, uh, religious background. Yeah. No doubt. And I, I, I can hear a lot of Americans listening. Oh, no, they're not going to talk about religion here. No, we're not going to talk about religion. That's as, as deep and as far as we're going to go. And then there, there's, of course, the, the, the Brussels area as well, which being the capital of, of well, Europe for one, and then Belgium uh, for the second or the other way around, which is a mix of, uh, of the Dutch language and the French language, although it's dominant French than Dutch, right? Yeah, it's, it's a, f- a dominantly French-speaking area. Um, it's a French-speaking island mm-hmm. in Flanders mm-hmm. where um, the majority of the business is actually international. So you have a lot of headquarters in Brussels. So that, and, and you have the, the seat of the European Parliament, European Union. Um, so a lot of English is spoken there as well. Yeah. And during the day, I'd say, I don't know what the statistics are, but I'd say, I'd say it's 50-50 yes. uh, Flemish and French because – a lot of the, the Flemish speakers go work in Brussels and then they go back to, to their home in Flanders. Yeah, and that makes it the, uh, the uh, traffic jam capital of Europe as well. Yes, yes, we are very proud of that. Yeah, very proud. Every day, 700,000 cars pour into Brussels and every day, 700,000 cars pour out of Brussels as well at the end of the day. Um, all right, so we've covered a, a bit about the interesting part about Belgian, um, Belgium. As such, you are Belgian yourself. You're, uh, we're, we're talking to you from Ghent, which is a university city. But you actually studied as well in New York City. How was that as a Belgian? How did you experience that? Well, New York is um, it's, it's a mixture of, of uh, cultures and nationalities. Uh-huh. My, my friends in New York uh, were from all over the world. And there happened to be some Americans as well. Mm-hmm. And so the same was reflected at, at NYU. Um, I studied a state law because working for a family office, it was important to, to understand uh, the, the principles of, of trust law. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are very Anglo-Saxon concepts, which we don't know in, in Napoleonic uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. And, and how was that? Um, 
Is that something you can shed some light on, on, uh, on Anglo-Saxon versus Napoleonic uh, law, or is that going to be too complicated? It, it is. Uh, we, we can talk a long time about that. But basically, um, the, the Na- Napoleonic is, is very much rule-based. Uh-huh. This is a rule, and you need to listen to the rule. Uh, yeah. Again, Catholic. Yeah. Listen to the rules. Uh, whereas... Um, in my mind, the Anglo-Saxon is more like a conceptual base. There's a concept. Okay, when it came to trusts, the concept was, hmm, how shall I transfer wealth to the next generation? And is there anything I can do in the meantime to help a good cause or to perhaps skip a generation because I don't like my son, he's a drunk and I want to think right. my inheritance. Too. So it's, it's about general concepts. But you also find that literally in the in sale and purchase agreements, mm-hmm. uh, concepts versus the letter of the law. And I, I believe you also find that in Asian cultures, when you have an Asian contract, the definition of contract is totally different than in Europe. Mm-hmm. In Europe, you, you listen to the letter of the contract. You know, if it says uh, times two, it means times two. Yeah. Whereas in, in Asia, a contract is a starting base for an ongoing relationship and a relationship is never static. So how can a contract be static? Yeah. Yeah. Huh? yeah. So contracts uh, mean different things or the term means something else. And that's a danger when you, you do an acquisition, you think contract means X. So it must mean X all over the world. But it, if for somebody in China, contract means Y. Yeah. So he thinks it must mean Y all over the world. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then, and, 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 yeah, and then you have a um, a problem of of perception for one, and probably in practice, you might have a hard time actually putting these two organizations together. Uh, correct, correct, because that uh, that's just the start then of yeah. of potential problems. Huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. So how was that as a again com- coming back to my initial question mm-hmm. as a Belgian going to New York? How how did you experience those cultural differences? Well. Um, in, in Belgium, we have a sort of an underdog uh, culture. Uh-huh. We, uh, we are silent and we work hard and we are very smart, but we would never boast about it. Uh-huh. And we would never say we, that we are the best. But actually, and, and, and we, we, we do not think that we are the best. But when I worked in New York, I was very much surprised that Actually, the American American culture, and I uh, apologize to American audience, um, people start from a very self-confident basis. Yeah. So they say, we are the best. Whether it's true or not, that, that doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But we are the best. And then I, and when you shout it long enough that you are the best, people start believing you. Yeah. And from my Belgian perspective, the same goes for Holland, by the way. It's like very much more extrovert saying you are the best and then people start believing it. So fake, then I thought... It's a bit of like fake it till you make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. And and I thought, well, they are the best. And then I, I came to New York and I, I worked in the office and then my, um, and my, my impression was not at all that they are the best. Mm-hmm. And I found that I excelled in, in, in most... Uh, areas where, where I worked, uh, the, and uh, even in English, writing English, I I, uh, I saw a lot of errors in the, in the grammar, in the spelling, 
And uh, so I don't think we should underestimate uh, ourselves. Mm. Uh, but you, I, as Belgians, that's, that's what, that's what you As say. Belgians, but, yeah. uh, and as world citizens. Um, but the effect, the self-fulfilling prophecy is when you say we are the best, a lot of the good people also move to your country. Yeah. Like in Silicon Valley, uh, a lot of uh, very smart Indians, very smart uh, French people, very smart South Americans, they all go to California because it, it, it is a magnet. Mm-hmm. And then... Anything that's invented there by, by anyone f- from across the globe yep. is then invented by Americans, so to say, because it was invented in California or it was made, made into a company in yeah. California. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, it's, it, it, and, and see, it does seem to work. I mean, and for a lot of, I think uh, to that extent, if you fake it till you make it, and if you live by that concept, be, be it Dutch or be it American or Anglo-Saxon to that extent, um, I think in, in, in a lot of situations, it is in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed is king. So if you know a little bit more than your client does, then you might be able to serve that client already. So I think that might be a reason, one of the reasons they might get away with this. Yeah, and it's not getting away. I think it's a fantastic um, trait. It's a fantastic thing to have because in a, in a rule-based society where everything needs to be uh, – Perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it'll never be perfect. Nope. So it gives you a lot of liberty and oxygen to be able to work and to fail and to try again and to succeed. Yes. And, and when you and refer that, to stuff that needs to be perfect, you're referring to Belgium and yeah. uh, being rule based. And if you if you're if you strive to be perfect, but you cannot you can never be perfect. That opens the door to a very stressful situation and a stressful life. Uh, correct. And, and you say land of the blind. I wouldn't say it like that. I would say like in the US and, and fake it like until you make it is sort of negative. But, but I would say, you know, a little bit and you start yeah. and then you learn and you know a little bit, little bit more. Yeah. So it's not the land of the blind. It's the, the land of those who are willing and, and, and wanting to, to learn how to see and see more and mm-hmm. then black and white and then color, yeah. you know, and if you say from the, from the start, I want to see in color but you start as a blind person, you'll never get there, right? And if you say, well, you know, starting a little bit is, is already better than nothing. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a fantastic attitude. Actually, I'm making, making notes as, we, as, as you speak, that is, because I think that's very nicely put, in, in, and it's a lot better than my phrase, fake it till you make it, although that's a very Anglo-Saxon phrase, of course. But uh, you start with, um, with being blind, you open your eyes slightly, and then you start to see it black and white, and then you add more color, and you learn, and you learn. It's like a nice, nice analogy there. Um, would, it, would I be correct uh, to say if your, your current job is mainly post-merger integration, that's PMI? Yes, yes? Yeah, absolutely. Can you explain what that is in your terms? What, what does that entail? So it's about uh, companies acquiring other companies, mm-hmm. pieces of other companies. And um, then you need to start integrating those two companies. Mm-hmm. And it, it's all dependent on the size of one versus the other and, and on how much you want to integrate or to what degree. But if you look at uh, any company has, has, has sales, any company has finance, uh, has operations, uh, human resources, so various uh, aspects. And um, depending on the, the deal rationale, why one acquires the other, mm-hmm. um, areas need to be integrated. You all need to start uh, reporting financially 
in the same format, for yeah. example, or, yeah. or your sales team. Um, there's there's overlapping geographical areas, or or we need to we need to have uh, financial gains from uh, from this this acquisition. Mm-hmm. The, the rationale for a deal can be financial gains. It can also be geographical coverage. It can also be we, we acquire our competitor and then kill him off. Mm-hmm. Uh, can be so many different things. That 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 would be the initial reason why you would actually do this. Yeah, and then the merger integration mm-hmm. is is making sure that that reason, that rationale, that you actually also realize it on the field. Yeah, uh, and it starts before signing a deal. Uh, first of all, knowing why you do the acquisition, mm-hmm. having a very good idea of your business model. And then having identified a gap in that model and then having a very good reason why it makes sense to buy in the competencies mm-hmm. uh, by buying another company. But then, of course, you, you need to the, – the gap is perhaps a triangle, you know, but you will never find the exact triangle to fit the gap. Can, can you explain that a little bit more? Uh, Because this is audio and not video, so maybe you might just... Yeah, imagine a puzzle. Your company is a puzzle and you have a couple of pieces missing to make your puzzle perfect. Now, it's going to be impossible to find out there in the market the exact same pieces of puzzle to make it fit. Mm -hmm. So you'll find something that fits more or less, but integrating means uh, adding a little bit and taking a little bit away until that piece of the puzzle fits. And it doesn't mean only changing the company you acquire, but it might very well mean changing yourself as well. Mm-hmm. If you miss a lot of the puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Y- you yourself as an acquirer, you will change significantly by adding a lot of pieces from another puzzle or from various puzzles. So how do you make that work? How do you then fit it all together again on all those different dimensions? That's merger integration. Mm-hmm. And people think, oh, you know, I buy these other pieces. Um, I pay a lot of money and then uh, champagne and that's it. We're done. Yeah. But <laughs> Well, no, you, now you need to start putting those pieces together until you have something that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, next combined question maybe. Um, out of the 100% mergers and acquisitions, the, the, the 100% M&As, what percentage um, runs really, really smooth without any hiccups whatsoever, like is, is, is a close to perfect match? And, um, well, that leaves the other percentage, of course, where there is some friction or they fail. And what is the reason for the failure? What, what are predominant reasons for failing uh, an M&A? Um, the success, basically, uh, 25%, I'd say. 25% is successful. Is successful. Like smoothly successful. Yeah. Okay. And that may be for various reasons. That yeah. may be also because you say, you know, it's going to be a bolt-on acquisition. I will uh, just uh, acquire it and leave it alone. Hmm? Yeah. But then, and of course, it depends on the studies, eh? but studies between 50 and 75% mm-hmm. of mergers do not succeed. And what does that mean? They, uh, uh, the management is not able to reach those objectives set out before the deal. Mm-hmm. And then what is, what is the reason for that? There, was, um, well, there are several studies and The Economist, um, uh, together with, with, with Accenture, regularly do these studies. Mm-hmm. So it's it's 
it's amazing, but the, the top four reasons why things don't work yeah. are all related to human capital, to people. So the, the first reason, first and foremost reason is addressing cultural integration issues. So this is so a not, survey. not addressing it. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. What they say, what is the most important thing? It's addressing. So if you don't do the most important thing, it doesn't happen. Yeah. And, and it, this is a, a huge survey, 10,000 managers from 73 countries, right? Yeah. The second one, uh, I like to, to, to put things in a positive perspective. So the second reason <laughs> why things work yeah. is uh, if you pay attention to a clear organizational structure, right? The third thing is leadership from the top management, leading by example, knowing where you want to go, having those two puzzles and, and showing, look, guys, we're making something new here and this is where we're going and this is what we want it to look like. Mm-hmm. And the fourth one is a good communication plan. Yeah. And the fifth one for me is, is, is related to everything before is a clear strategic rationale. You know, know why you do it if you don't know why you do it. But so those top five are, are related all to, to people. And the most important one is culture. So I think this is a, your blog is at a <laughs> good position here. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, well, that, that's why you're on the show as well, because uh, when it comes to culture, there are uh, national cultural differences, like the difference between, uh, as we said, as we talked about before, before we hit record, the Dutch and the Belgians or the Indians and the Americans or the Germans and the, what is it, the, the Vietnamese, whatever you have. So th- those are the national cultural differences. But then you also have organizational culture um, differences, of course, and I, I ex- experienced that up close and personal in uh, at the end of 19, 1999, that's, so that's 15, 16 years ago, when KLM tried to get together or marry, if you want, the airline, the Dutch airline, KLM, mm-hmm. tried to marry Alitalia, the Italian airline, and, you know, all of a sudden I had an Italian boss who had no idea what I was doing, and I had no idea what she was looking for. And so ultimately that led to my departure um, of that company because it just did not work from a cultural perspective. It didn't work. And eventually that failed. It went flat on his face. And they they said it was because of a um, of a hard deal uh, over the airline, for the, the airport Malpensa close to um, uh-huh. uh, Milan. Milan, Milano, exactly. They had to pay a fine of close to 200 million euros or something, but that was not the prime reason. The prime reason was indeed it didn't work because of the people didn't work. And it's not that the people are not willing yes, or not able. Yeah, It's just they want the same thing, but they want it in a different way. They want to reach the top where one takes one road and the other takes another, another yeah. road. And so it's not that – it's not about people. Uh, it's, it's about how – you know your background and indeed so you have your national differences Mm -hmm. you have your organizational differences and i'd even say chris you have um industry differences you you can imagine that an an industry culture in the music industry difference from that uh, in law offices or in the petrochemical industry so you have that's third dimension very often things overlap Mm -hmm. uh, uh, country differences and organizational differences, but not necessarily. And and I, I'm even hesitant to speak about country culture because it's even within countries, it's it's regional. Sure. Um, 
uh, although it's a good starting point and, and a good place to start if, if this is new uh, for you is, is Geert Hofstede's mm-hmm. cultural dimensions when you want to look at uh, countries. When you want to look at organizations and countries, I think uh, Erin Meyer, a professor uh, in INSEAD, uh, I think, ha- has different um, uh, different benchmarks to check uh, culture and different uh, aspects of culture. Yeah. Um, and, and then those, what, what, what you need to do then is, is map yourself on those uh, different uh, dimensions. And, and I'll just briefly, 10 seconds of theory. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Cultural dimensions. And I'm using what Erin Meyer um, describes in uh-huh. her book. Communication is one dimension. Are you very direct in your communication? When you mean uh, blue, do you mean blue? Mm-hmm. Or are you very indirect? And, and is it very much related to the context? When you mean blue, I'm not really meaning blue. You know, everybody understands that I mean yellow, but I'm just saying blue because that's the more polite thing to say. So you have evaluation. How, how do you give feedback uh, and negative feedback? Do you give it very directly like the Dutch because you think it's very honest or do you give it very much indirectly like Asians because you don't want to pe- have people lose face, uh, you know, you want to bring it very indirectly. It means about persuading. How can you persuade somebody? Eh? Americans um, like to persuade people by uh, saying, you know, I thought about it and this is the solution and then. 99% goes to the solution how you implement. Mm-hmm. Try this with Germans and the Germans will say, oh, 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 wait wait a second. Um, how do you get to that conclusion? Yes. Um, what, what's your reasoning? The French will do that as well. The French will, will bring up all sorts of counter arguments because that's their culture. They give a thesis, an antithesis, and then they come to a synthesis. Yeah. You know? And when you do that with Americans, they say, how do you dare to doubt me? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Uh, no, we're not doubting you. We, we we're trying to to understand, and and we cannot be easily persuaded. We want to see the arguments. We want to follow the reasoning. Yeah. Um, leading, are you very much hierarchical? Are you egalitarian in leadership style? Yeah. And what is the reality versus uh, versus the perception? Because because when my perception in in in, uh, in uh, the US. When I worked there with, with, in the family office, my boss was the oldest family member. Mm-hmm. We were immediately on first name basis. So I, I thought, ah, yeah, that's very much egalitarian. Mm-hmm. Not really true. Um, when, when in Europe you have a, a consensus between a group of managers, they mm-hmm. talk about it and they have a consensus. And the leader is almost like a facilitator. Mm-hmm. I think that's also the case in Holland. It's like a facilitator. He wants to, to hear the opinions of his team. It's consultative leadership, right? Yes. Yeah. In the US, it's more like uh, uh, the leader takes a decision. He's very much um, one of the guys, but he takes the decision. Yeah, and, he's, the, he's the quarterback that makes the decision and then carries that as well. Yeah. So, yeah. so you know, it, appearances may be deceptive. Another uh, so decision, uh, how you make a decision is, is one dimension. Another one is trust in um, uh, some European countries like Holland and, and, and Flanders region and to a certain extent uh, Anglo-Saxon countries. Mm-hmm. 
Trust is based on doing what you were expected to do. Mm-hmm. And for example, being on time, delivering on time. Um, this guy promises, promises me something and he does it. Mm-hmm. I can trust him. Yeah. Um, in Latin American cultures, uh, uh, Hispanic cultures, and, and to the extreme Asian cultures, Trust is not based on that at all. It's based on building your relationship. Yep. You know, you take time, you wine and you dine. And, and uh, to use a, a cliche in Japan, you get drunk together in the evening. It's not, even a, it's not even a cliche. No, it's, yeah, it's a, well, <laughs> cliches are based on truth. You Absolutely. get drunk in the evening and, and then, then I can trust you because, you know, you and I, we were both completely drunk, had a lot of fun and, and shared personal things. Mm-hmm. And next day um, we act as if nothing happened, but now I can trust you. Yeah. Um, so different concepts again, disagreement, the same thing. How, if you disagree with somebody, how do you do that? Do you do that uh, confrontationally? Like say, Hey, I don't, agree, I don't agree with you. I think it's a different way around. Yeah. Or do you do that more like uh, avoiding confrontation? Because in some cultures when, 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 as a Dutch guy, you say, hey, I don't agree. Uh, people are insulted, you know. They think uh, they lose. They feel like you, you make them lose face. Which and, is not- and, and you break the trust and hence the perception are being formed, etc. And things fall through the... Uh, yeah. By the and you do it from a very honest perspective. Uh-huh. And they do that too. They, but just from a different perspective. And that's where a lot of things can break down. Yeah. And then lastly, it's time. Um, Yes. How are you at time? <laughs> okay. you, have, you know, men from Mars, women are from Venus. Uh, men can only do at a time sequentially. That's a bit, uh, yeah, that's a bit like Anglo-Saxon, uh, yeah. Anglo-Saxon and, and European cultures. Or at time you can do multiple things at the same time and plus circumstances change. So, you know, whatever needed to be done changes as well. The view of time is, is, is very different. Mm-hmm. So those dimensions, you have them in every company. Mm-hmm when it comes to organizational culture and you need to know where you are on all those axes. And then are you, when it comes to trust, where are you on the axis? Are you more facts based? Mm-hmm. And then where is your uh, target company or the company you want to integrate? Is that more based on relationships? Yeah. And then relative to where you are, you can uh, address the issue just already by naming it. You can just say, Hey, I'm, I'm a Belgian, I'm a Flemish guy, you know, I'm very direct. Uh, I apologize if I come across uh, rude or or, or, um, incompetent eh? because, but that's from my culture and I know that you are different. You, um, from from me, for you it means more building relationships and I'm going to do my best to modify myself and adapt, adapt myself a little bit to whatever is is more suitable to having contact with you, but immediately tension will be uh, lessened, and and then your counterparty will say will be more inclined to do the same thing and move a little bit towards you, mm-hmm. and that, that's how you build those bridges. But you yeah. need to know first that there is a, a gap, and then then you need to name it, mm-hmm. and then you can agree on a common way of doing things. Yeah, but it's first things first. It's this this it's that sequence that's important. It's a sequence. And when you're already in a negotiation phase, yeah. um, I, I was at a deal where 
an Indian company, that was in the beginning of the year, an Indian company uh, out of the U.S. headquarters in Palo Alto acquired a company in Israel mm-hmm. with a subsidiary in Japan. Of course. How complicated can it get? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, fantastic. The Israelis were in this very posh lawyer's office uh, in, in their jeans and T-shirts and so on. And the lawyers were, of course, very much uh, in, in, in a, in a three-piece suit. And then the Indians were a bit uh, in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, the power distance in Israel is very low. Mm-hmm. The distance between the boss and the employee is very, very low. Mm-hmm. In India, it's very, very, very high. Yes. Um, when you negotiate, if you're not aware of these things, you, you can uh, tread on a lot of toes yeah. and, and, and create unnecessary tension. So just do a little bit of homework uh, and, and look at what the country differences are. And, and, and that will already help you. And it will put, put you in a better position uh, towards your competitor who has not done his homework. Yes, true. And it'll, 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 it'll uh, increase the chances of, of becoming, yes. having a successful outcome, of course. And if you don't do your homework, then you could always also go either to you or to, to me, for instance, and, you know, have yourself be advised in terms of what you need to look at. But yeah, you have yourself advised by, by yeah. lawyers and, and do financial due diligence. Well, also take the trouble to go through this culture uh, due diligence, an organizational yeah. due diligence, and, and, and then ask for the recommendations, and it'll help you uh, succeed. And, and don't turn a blind eye, because then you will just hit your wall with your eyes closed. Yeah, it'll backfire in, eventually. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I'm looking at the, the time that we uh, we've been talking, and we're uh, we're over 35 minutes. Most of the uh, of the interviews I do are around 30 minutes, 40 minutes, or something, which is perfectly fine. Um, I I find this a fascinating topic, and uh, I I could continue talking about this for hours and hours. By the way, the the um, the model you mentioned by Aaron Meyer, uh, that's what you previously were talking about, right? All these these dimensions, sort of. Yes, eight dimensions. Yeah. Yes. Okay. For those of you who are listening in the future to this uh, to this recording, this podcast uh, recording date here is October sixth, uh, twenty fifteen. And uh, in November 2015, Aaron Meyer uh, self will be uh, on the on the show being interviewed as well. So if you're listening to this after November 2015, you might want to go back and find that uh, that episode if you're listening to this one. Sort of that's my uh, going back to the future kind of uh, explanation with this. I hope this this makes sense. I have a, um, two and a half more questions for you, Christopher, if I may. Um, one builds on what we've just been talking about. And then I'd like to sort of close off the uh, the interview. So my last, if you want, content question is: Why are so many organizations overlooking this the the human cultural aspect of M and A's? What's why do they do this? Why are people brushing over culture so fast? Well, uh, Stephen Covey had something about uh, unconsciously unaware. Uh-huh. People are are not they're just not aware of of this of this issue. And a lot of them may say, oh, I know culture, but they know it from their um, uh, area of, of, of uh, how do you call that, uh, um, where, where they feel comfortable, from their comfort, their comfort zone. zone yeah. From their comfort zone. Yes, in, in my Flemish comfort zone, I think I know everything because yeah. I see it through my spectacles. But then throw me in, in the Serengeti desert and then I will see that perhaps I was wrong. So when I'm wrong, then I'm all, already uh, uh, aware that I'm not 
really able to deal with these things. And then you need to move to the next stage that you teach yourself how to how to deal with these cultural issues. But how, so, how do you, I mean, if this is a blind spot for so many people slash organizations, how do you make this a non-blind spot? Uh, you institutionalize uh, culture in your M&A work. You make it part of the deal. You mm-hmm. train your managers, mm-hmm. you train your deal makers on cultural aspects. Uh, there are trainings out there. Um, we also provide those trainings at Global PMI Partners. Mm-hmm. You bring in uh, experts who know how to do it. Mm-hmm. If you don't have time to do those trainings and, and to be aware of it, well, bring somebody in who is aware of it and who can take it into account when you communicate and, and when you deal with it. So them. you make it an integral part of the, uh, the, the PMI or the M&A? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, again, the top five things are people-related. The first reason why deals go wrong is culture. Yeah. Maybe it makes sense to invest a bit in that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you're speaking to the converted here because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on the same side. Absolutely. I just I just bump into so often that people say, well, no, we don't need this. This is fine. You know, under the if we add it all up, it all makes sense and we can do this deal. And then I wonder, but have you, have you actually actually looked at the organizational culture and the people who actually need to do this? Are they willing? Are they, do they yeah. understand? It's, it's, it's all the stuff you just mentioned. And people have a high, uh, huge, huge personality deal makers. And, and they have a very big idea of who they are. And they think, well, I don't need this. Yeah, it's like a big ego. And nobody is there to contradict them. Yeah, true, true, true. All right. Um, the one last question is, can you give us three tips to become more culturally competent, Christopher? Well, no way. Uh, I would say uh, read Geert Hofstede's work, uh, read Erin Meyer's work, um, or, or read the culture chapters from, from our book, Global mm-hmm. PMI book on um, cross-border integrations, educate yourself a little bit. Know where you are on, on various cultural axes. And, and then already that awareness creates something um, valuable. Yeah. Uh, second, institutionalize culture in your deals, pre-deal, eh? pre-signing. Mm-hmm. Um, and pre-deal means get yourself trained, train your management teams on it because you, you might have done integrations in the past so it will probably be helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in your third one, in your communication, take into account cultural aspects. Global communication um, makes sense to a certain degree but how you deliver the message is going to be different in Japan than from Israel and, and, and India. So, See where you need to go, speak personally with your supplier uh, or, or with your customer or where it's enough to send an email or a phone call and how you bring that message across. Yeah, Makes perfect sense. They'll be in the show notes that you can find on culturematters.com. And click on the podcast tab and you'll find Christopher's interview right there uh, floating around. Christopher van Gampelaar, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, just leave it like that. In, well um, pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's so hard to do this in English. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you and know more about what you do or your company, how can they do this? Uh, just surf to uh, Global PMI Partners, gpmip.com. gpmip.com. Correct. All right. Got it all noted. It'll get, be in those show notes as well. Thank you so much for um, showing a little bit of the insight that uh, from your experience, how this all works with uh, with mergers and acquisitions and organizational culture. And thanks for your valid, thank you for your valid, very valid advice. And I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. 
Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you, Christopher, for this and enlightening us when it comes to uh, M&A's mergers and acquisitions and the complexity there. And of course, to some extent, the resistance that organizations slash people have when it comes to uh, paying attention to the people within an organization. It's always the people. It's uh, hardly ever the, uh, the, the hard, fast variables, as we say. All right, this is the end of the Culture Matters podcast. If you're listening to this in the car, if you're mowing the lawn, if you're on your run, um, have a safe drive, have a good run, and uh, have a safe uh, lawn mowing session, I guess. If you do think about it and you're uh, you're back home behind your computer and you think about Culture Matters and the Culture Matters podcast, I would really appreciate if you would leave a rating, a review and a rating on iTunes and Stitcher, of course, where you can listen to us as well. And uh, give us an honest rating and review Otherwise, you can also leave a comment on the website, culturematters.com. Thanks so much for doing that. Really appreciate that. And I'll be back next week with another podcast. Take care. Till then. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.